Good morning. I'm preaching to you this morning from the book of Proverbs and chapter 7. And the point that our Savior is making to us today is to warn us of a plague that is rampant in our own land. It's pervasive and it's persistent and it's a dangerous pestilence and it's all around us, and we are not immune to it, and we will never acquire any natural immunity to it. And it's the, it's the, uh, it's the pestilence of sexual immorality. There's a, te- there's a terror that stalks, there's a dreadful threat that does not sleep, there's a pestilence that's walking at the night, and there's a destruction that's laying waste even at noon. And it has the power to infect your soul with terrible ruin. And it's the pestilence of sexual impurity. All you have to do is look at the world around you. Open your eyes and you'll see a thousand falling at your side. Open your eyes and you'll see ten thousand falling. Infected. And destroyed. This plague in our land is... Stalking, it is infectious, it is easily contagious, it's a destructive defilement. The fact that the scriptures give so many repeated warnings of this particularly destructive defilement, it ought to make us alert. In the New Testament, the apostles' repeated warnings and rebukes to professing Christians means that it's a pestilence that can be found in churches. So it's not that it might be a threat to us, even here in this church, but, it, but that it's a constantly present threat, given the devil, given the world, given our own remaining corruptions. I would say it's not a mere possibility, but that it's very likely that this pestilence is among us, this lust, this craving for impurity, it's a fundamental element of our sinful hearts craving for impurity. Given the New Testament, the way that the New Testament, the apostles handle this, even with churches, I would say that it is more than a possibility that this corruption is perhaps, even with some in this congregation, that it's taken a stronger hold. Perhaps it's become deeply rooted in some hearts, even in this, even in this church. Perhaps for some it's become this uh, it's become settled. Perhaps this lust for sexual impurity has become settled and it's become habitual. There's a, there's a snare, there's a terror, there's a pestilence, there's a destruction. There is this soul-piercing arrow of sexual immorality. And we would ask the question, well then how how fitting is it for some idolatrous defilement to be set up in the heart of the temple of God? And you are the temple of God. You are the temple of the living God. As Paul said to the Corinthians, Therefore, having the gospel promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from all filthiness of the flesh and spirit. How improper is it for this to be set up, for this idolatrous defilement to be set up in the very heart of the temple of the living God? Your Savior is calling you this morning to the sincere endeavoring to walk in sexual purity, to put off sin, 
looking to the promises of the gospel of grace. If you've been indulging sexual lust, if it's become a habit in your thinking, if you have fallen into the snare of indulging your lust through pornography, and all of the all of the, uh, the polls and the surveys that I read say that it's a problem for women as much as it is for men. Or if it's gone even further than that, then t- today is the day your Savior is reaching out his hand to you by this word. This is his mercy to you. Are you tired of it? Are you tired of the wounding of your conscience? then this is your Savior's mercy to you today. That it's in his word that he put it in my mind to preach this to you today. This is his mercy and this is his love to call you away from this path of misery and this path of destruction back to the path of true contentment, back to the path of true happiness. Happiness, that's what your heart is longing. That's what you've been looking for Contentment, satisfaction, fulfillment, that's what you've been trying to grasp, but this is only by holiness. It's the way that God made us, that we would find our happiness and contentment and satisfaction only in conformity with his righteous image. All of this isn't, this isn't my opinion, this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you should abstain from sexual immorality. Our Lord is ready today. He is, of course, faithful to strengthen your repentance and faith today by means of his word and spirit. Again, today, by this sermon that I'm preaching to you, the Lord is extending his hand to lead you away from sexual impurity and away from this path which has only made you miserable. Let's take a look at Proverbs 7, and we begin with a preface in verses 1 through 5, this, this sets the stage for a very sad story or drama that's going to unfold before our very eyes. Pro- Proverbs 7 is a sad story of a young man who did not take this threat seriously. And he ended up paying a steep price for it. The chapter begins with these words, My son, keep my words and treasure my commands within you. Keep my commands and live, and my law is the apple of your eye. Bind them on your fingers, write them on the tablet of your heart. Say to wisdom, you are my sister, and call understanding your nearest kin, that they may keep you from the immoral woman, from the seductress who flatters with her words. You may wonder... Where does sexual immorality begin? Of course, we know that it begins with lust in the heart, but you might also be asking, well, where does lust begin? Well, lust begins in an unteachable heart. It begins in a heart that's not receiving instruction. So notice where the story begins. Notice how it all starts out here. It's about listening. It's about taking in God's words. It's about treasuring His commands and His promises above everything else. In the world that you live in, there are two very different words that you could offer your heart to. There are two different words that you have been offering your heart to. There is on one hand the word that saves, and there is on the other hand the word that seduces. 
There is on one hand the command of God, there is the law of God that leads you to life. There's the word of God and all of its commands and warnings and promises that leads you to lasting happiness and lasting satisfaction, lasting fulfillment, lasting contentment, that leads you to true tranquility of soul and peace of mind. And on the other hand, there's the word of the immoral woman who promises all of those ideal things that you want, but of course can't give you any of those things. Perhaps you you already know this. You you know the unhappiness, you know the dissatisfaction, you know the the turbulence in in your soul. You know very well, perhaps, the wounded conscience that comes from disobedience. Which word is it that, that you've been offering your heart to? Proverbs chapter 7 begins by essentially asking you this question, what, what are you treasuring? What are you laying hold up in your heart? Hold, hold, what are you holding up in your heart, storing up in your heart as the most valuable treasure? You can discern this by the happiness or misery in your heart. On one hand is the perfect law of the Lord that converts the soul. It turns the soul back from certain destruction. It's powerful to give you the gift of a glad heart. On the other hand are the words of the immoral woman, words that justify sin, words that rob you of your happiness, words that pave the road to hell with flattery. We just heard from Proverbs 5 that the lips of an immoral woman drip honey and her mouth is smoother than oil, but in the end she is bitter as wormwood, sharp as a two-edged sword. Her feet go down to death, her steps lay hold of hell. In Psalm 19, David is there speaking of the word of the Lord. He's speaking of the promises and the commands and the warnings of the Lord. He says, speaking of, speaking of those things, he says, More to be desired are they than gold, yes, than much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and the honeycomb. Which word is your mind occupied with? The words of the Lord are sweeter than honey. Has your mind been occupied and taken up with those things or with the so-called honey of the words of the seductress? She speaks and her words drip with flattery and sweetness. They drip with promises of happiness, but they're actually poisonous. David says, again from Psalm 19, speaking of the word, he says that by the word of the Lord he is warned. By the word of the Lord he is warned, and in keeping the warnings there is great reward. There's no reward in ignoring the warnings. Perhaps your wounded conscience is already telling you this. There's no happiness in sexual sin. There's no contentment that you're going to find there. There's no tranquility of mind. There's no peace of soul. Counterfeit honey leads to counterfeit happiness. 
If your soul is sick in this particular way, is it because you've been imbibing spiritual poison? It'd be one thing, right, if it were only one immoral woman, like a one, like a one literal immoral woman that you had to be on guard against, or if there was only one source of this enticing flattery, but the immoral, seducing, smooth words... This is a collective voice in our culture. It's a voice, it's an attitude in our culture and in the world all around us. Scripture here is calling us, your Savior here is calling you back to His Word. You must listen. You have to take His Word in. You have to be writing it upon the tablet of your heart. The Word of God is just this glancing thing that passes near your heart but doesn't really enter into it. You're in danger. It's the wise man who foresees danger and hides himself. There's a particular danger. There's a particular pestilence that's all around us. And if, you don't, if you're not taking in God's Word and if you don't take in the Word that is ready for you today, well, then, then it's your own fault. It's not the fault of the immoral woman. It's your fault. In the spring, I do all this work to prepare my garden, and most, 99% of my garden work is soil prep. It's not actually growing plants. It's soil prep. And you might wonder, where does this sin, where does this sin come from? We would say, well, it sprouts from lust, right? It begins in the heart and then proceeds outwardly in different ways. But what kind of soil does lust, the seed of lust, get easily settled into? It's the soil of the heart that hasn't been listening. It's the soil of a heart that's not listening to the warnings of God's Word, not treasuring up His commands, not storing up His gospel promises. This, this is the heart This is the soil where the seed of lust can easily become settled and then, of course, from there become deeply rooted even and sprout to all kinds of evil fruit. Listen, says the Lord at the beginning of the chapter. Listen. Take in His Word. Take seriously His warnings. Let's now pay attention to a foolish man. We see him described in verses 6 through 9. At the window of my house, I looked through my lattice and saw among the simple, I perceived among the youths, a young man devoid of understanding. Passing along the street near her corner, he took the path to her house in the twilight, in the evening, in the black and dark night. This is your opportunity to look through this opened window and to see if it's you who's being observed. Is it you who's passing along there in the street? Let's notice, first, uh, let's notice four things about this man. First of all, we notice that he is simple. He's described as being simple or simple-minded. 
This doesn't mean that he's the kind of guy who's content to get by in life with the basics. It's not that kind of simple life. That's not what's meant. The simple man in the book of Proverbs is the man who is susceptible to being deceived. That's what it means to be simple-minded. And we would ask, well, well, how does that happen? How does a man become susceptible to being deceived? Well, Proverbs 14, 15 says this. The simple, that is, the simple-minded man, the simple believes every word, but the prudent considers well his steps. He might be thinking of the word gullible at this point, and that would be a good word to use. Simple-minded, gullible, easily deceived. Why is that? Because he doesn't have a filter on his mind. He believes every word, the Scripture says. He takes in whatever, the, whatever, this, in, whatever is this influence that's floating around him. There's no filter against it. He just takes it in. While the prudent, the wise man, who do, who, um, who's not simple-minded, he's considering well his steps. He's looking at the decisions that he's making. He's considering, a, he, he thinks about how he thinks and what's coming into his heart. The simple man is mentally lazy. The simple man is spiritually irresponsible. He doesn't guard his heart. He believes anything, allows anything to come in. The simple-minded man doesn't, he doesn't want the work or he doesn't want the humility to look at his own steps and to look at his own decisions and to honestly evaluate if he's right or wrong. He doesn't want to honestly evaluate, humbly evaluate whether his steps today are leading to good or to harm tomorrow. The prudent man is the man who's looking at his destination tomorrow when he considers his steps today. prudent man, the wise man, he's submitting himself and he's limiting himself to true and wise and biblical guidance. He's, he's keeping a guard on his heart. But uh, the simple-minded man, he's lazy. He allows to come into his mind whatever is floating around out there. There's a laziness in his heart, but we would also say there's certainly rebellion in his heart. Because this approach to life, it, it leads him drifting around in whatever direction his sins will take him. It leaves him susceptible to drifting around into whatever the uh, other sinful people are calling him to. This is, this is simple-mindedness. And so then, without... Submitting himself to the humility of working out action and consequence. Without the humility or the good sense to listen to warnings, he ends up in troubles. And he ends up in trials that are all of his own making. Now certainly we're going to read of the sins of somebody else in this chapter. But all of his troubles and all of his trials are entirely his own fault. He's the one who did not guard his heart, believing whatever, taking in whatever, with no thought to how that would lead him or to where it would lead him. 
There's training available for this man. There's, there's correction available. There's discipline. It's readily available, but the simple-minded man is not interested in sincerely humbling himself under those things. Here's what it means to be simple-minded. It means to think that you can be careless and uh, you'll get away with it. That's being simple-minded. Does it really matter? I mean, if you're careful or not. Proverbs 1, verses 32 and 33 say that the simple are killed by their turning away from God's Word. The simple are killed by their turning away. And that the complacency or that the carelessness of fools destroys them. So it does matter. How's your soberness been lately with this threat? How's your vigilance been lately with this pestilence? Is your own soul drowning? Is it being devoured by means of sexual impurity? Humbly examine if it is because you have deprioritized the taking in of the Lord's Word. Humbly examine whether you've been careless by allowing the unfiltered influence of the enticing promises of happiness offered to you by all of the harlotry in our culture. You know, of course, the truth that you'll find your heart wherever your treasure is. So where's your heart? What is it that you've been treating as the apple of your eye, as the most valuable thing to have, as the most valuable thing to protect and to retain? Are the commands, the warnings, the promises of God's Word, are they the treasure that's more valuable to you than anything else? You can discern that based upon the location of your heart. So here's a young man. He's simple-minded. That's the first thing that we see. He's behaving carelessly with his own heart. And we'll see here that this comes out in his behaving as if the immoral woman is the treasure Let's notice a second thing about this man. We're looking through the window and we're dressing ourselves with the humility to see whether it is ourselves that we are observing. Secondly, we notice that he's passing along the street near her corner. Oh, poor guy. There he was. He's just trying to live his life, right? Trying to go about... Life, normally, there he was, just minding his own business, and there he is, taken completely by surprise, yes or no? Now, I will, let me specify, let me be very careful to specify that it is true that a Christian can be taken by sudden temptation. It is true, it can happen. A Christian can be um, suddenly ambushed by a very spiritually clever and violent attack. These attacks can come upon you suddenly. They can be sourced in the devil. They can be sourced from the world. They can be sourced from our, from our own remaining corruptions. All right? You can be ambushed. You can be surprised 
by a temptation to sexual impurity, and it can leave you stumbling, and you've got to get yourself stabilized again back upon the Word of God. But remember that the man that we're observing is careless. He's simple-minded. Because he's too lazy or perhaps too proud to listen to the warnings or to filter out things that can harm him. Perhaps because he thinks he's invincible, he has therefore made choices that put him within the grasp of strong temptation. Again, the trouble that this man is about to have is his own fault. It's because, notice what the text tells, it's because he took the path to her house. This this is not the man who's walking along minding his own business and then suddenly goes, oh, I, I I had no idea where... I had no idea where I was going. He took the path to her house. This is how he ends up at the corner. Was this a complete surprise to him? No. Proverbs 5.22, we've already heard this read to us today. When it speaks of the wicked man, he's, he's entrapped by his own iniquities. He's caught in the cords of his own sin. How do we, how do we really know that, that he's simple-minded? How do we really know that he's careless? How do we know that he's not really looking out for danger ahead despite all the warnings? It's because he made the conscious, deliberate decision to put himself where he could see her. And because he made the conscious, deliberate decision to put himself where he could hear her. He took the path to her house. Is it really true that, I mean really, is it really true that you have no idea why you have been struggling of late so much with sexual impurity? Or is it really easy to figure out based on the proximity decisions that you've been making? Our brother Bain just preached to us on this point of how we mock God if we pray for God's help for our purity and then intentionally place ourselves into the very situations where we know that overpowering temptation is going to be present. That is to be simple-minded. That is to be careless. That is to ignore the warnings. That's to try to convince yourself that you're the exception to this action and consequence. The man in Proverbs 7 has opened himself up, right? He believes every word. There's not a filter and a guard upon his heart. So he's opened himself up to drifting around in a sea of impurity. But his drifting and his undisciplined mind, we can't exactly say that it's aimless. He knew where his steps would take him. It's not that he's completely ignorant about this concept of action and consequences. It's that he's the classic fool who thinks he's the exception to the warnings. He thinks he can linger. He thinks he can linger at the corner near her house 
and put himself within range of seeing her and hearing her and not be harmed. What a fool. Proverbs 6, we heard this rhetorical question from verses 27 and 28. The rhetorical question, can a man take fire to his bosom and, and his... And uh, can, a fire, can a man take fire to his bosom and his clothes not be burned? Can one walk on hot coals and his feet not be seared? If you're struggling with sexual impurity, humbly examine if it is because you've been playing with fire and convincing yourself that you won't be burned. And yet, the wounding in your conscience tells you the truth of that text? Is it because you have been overestimating your strength to overcome temptation? Is it because you have been underestimating the power of the remaining corruptions in your heart? Is it because you've been underestimating the power of this temptation? Have you been thinking that you are strong enough to have your own soul pierced and stabbed and yet not slain? If these are the leprous sores on your soul, I want you to take a moment and I want you to remember what the Lord said. When he said, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous to sinners, call the righteous but sinners to repentance. And, and there in Luke 5, we, we know it's in that context where that leper falls before the Lord and begs him for his mercy. Lord, if you're willing, you can make me clean. This is, this morning, this sermon, this is, this is your opportunity if necessary, if you need to do this. Right now, privately in your heart, you can cast yourself again at the feet of the Savior and say, Lord, make me clean. Are you sick? Are these the leprous souls that are taking root in your soul? Then come before him. Come before him and confess this. Bring this clinging, perhaps deeply rooted leprosy before the Lord and ask him for his forgiveness and ask him for his cleansing. That's the second thing that we've noticed he wasn't taken by complete surprise. He's lingering on purpose. He took the path to her house. Let's notice a third thing about this man. I think we need to ask the question, well, how did he know which path to take? I think it's because it's not his first time. He intentionally chooses this path because he already knows where it goes. I think it's because he's traveled this path many times before. His placing of himself in the proximity of sexual seduction has become his habit. And I must ask if you would take a look through this window and see if it's you that we're looking at. Are you looking at yourself? Has sexual impurity by any means become a habit that feels to you like it, it's something that you, it's like it's a habit that you just can't break? Are you not sure why it is that 
even after coming under the influence of the gospel, and after knowing what it means to be separated and sanctified to some degree from the pollutions and the sinful defilements of the world, are you, do you wonder how is it that you could go back and become so entangled with sexual defilement? Well, I want you to listen to Proverbs 26.11 because it offers an explanation on habitual sin. Proverbs 26.11 says this, As a dog returns to its own vomit, so a fool repeats his folly. The third thing we're observing about this man, I think what what we're observing is we're observing something that's become habitual. If you want to understand why the sinful fool goes back and repeats his folly... If you want to understand why the sinful fool goes back and repeats his defiling, conscience-wounding folly, all you have to do is understand the dog. Why is it that a dog can get sick and vomit its last meal and then proceed to lap it all back up? It's because... He loves it. When you find yourself in the vicinity of your vomit or somebody else's, do you wallow in it? Do you want to keep it around? Do you want to save it? Do you savor it? Or... When you're in the vicinity of your own vomit or somebody else's, do you not do whatever it takes to clean it up and to get it out of sight, out of smell, out of mind as soon as possible? Why do you do that? Because you hate it. Parents, I know that you've had on occasion to dig down deep and find strength to overcome your own gag reflex, to clean up the child and to clean up all of the aftermath. How did you do it? It's because vomit is disgusting. It's because it's revolting. It's, It's because it's repulsive to you. It's because you see vomit for what it really is. To you, vomit is disgusting, but for your dog, oh, it's delicious. Your sin is habitual because you love it. Your sin is habitual at least because you don't hate it enough. That's why the fool goes back. Why in the world would a dog do that? Because he loves it. It's delicious to him. If it were repulsive, the dog would stay away from it. If the dog saw it as repulsive, he would stay away from it. You might hate the consequences. You might hate the feeling of shame. You might hate the wounding of your conscience. You might hate all of that. You might hate how it all leaves you feeling, but the fool keeps going back because to some degree it's the treasure that he wants to hold on to. If this is you... If it has become habitual, then come before the Lord and confess this to Him. 
confess that you have loved your sin. Confess to him that you have not learned to hate it enough. Come before the Lord and confess this to him. If you've been returning to the kind of vomit that is spiritually defiling, if you are in the habit of downplaying it, if you're in this settled habit of excusing it, if you're, if you're in this settled habit of calling it something less than the disgusting sin that it really is, then you have developed a habit of deceiving yourself. Confess this to the Lord. Do you know what this sermon is? Do you know what this very moment is for you? This is the moment of the Lord extending His hand and extending His promise to you. He says, if you will confess your sins, that He will be faithful and just to forgive you and to cleanse you even of this sin. Come before Him. Lay this before Him. Call it what it really is and ask for His forgiveness. And ask for His help. Happiness is only found with holiness. And our Savior is faithful to provide you both. Why not come before Him even in this very moment and ask Him? Ask Him for His help. Ask Him for His cleansing. Ask Him that He would strengthen you in your soul to hate this sin and to love His righteousness. Aren't you weary of this? Or haven't you grown tired of the lack of peace in your soul? Aren't you weary of, of living day after day with this wounded conscience that nags you? Come before the Lord and lay all of this before Him and ask Him for His help. Ask Him for His forgiveness. You have been unfaithful. Come before Him who is ever faithful. There's a fourth thing we can observe of this man. We should ask, uh, was his conscience bothering him? I've mentioned this a few times already, but what about this man? Was his conscience wounded in any way? Was his conscience bothering him? Was he doing something even though he knew it was wrong? Well, notice when he took the path to her house. Do you notice when? It was in the diminishing light of twilight. It was in the no light of the black and dark night. Well, why did he do that? Well, we all know, don't we? He knew that he did not want his actions easily discovered by others in broad daylight. And why not? If sexual impurity by any means has become habitual for you and if you know that you have been doing something that you know is wrong and that you don't want your actions to be easily discovered by others, why is that? Why try to hide it? We notice this, this man isn't ignorant, is he? There's a lot of ignorance, but he's not ignorant about what he's doing, about the wrongness of it. He is deliberately trying to cover his steps to make them undiscoverable. He's deliberately entertaining the temptation under the cover of 
darkness. So again, I must ask, do you recognize this man? He knows that if he is discovered, he will have to face his foolishness under the illuminating light of day. He doesn't want to be discovered because he doesn't want to be stopped. He wants his sin hidden more than he wants it uncovered and then having to honestly face the defilement of the thoughts and the intentions of his heart. He's a fearful man, isn't he? Sneaking around, covering his steps. He's a fearful man. He fears not having his sin more than he fears the Lord before whom he is accountable. I want you to listen to that again. He fears not having his sin more than he fears the Lord before whom he is accountable. He is more afraid, taking all of these steps to protect his way and to preserve what he's doing, to keep it from being discovered, He is more afraid of what he will suffer if his sin opportunities are taken away more than what he will suffer as an unrepentant sinner. And if that's not the insanity of sin, then I can't tell you what is. But that's what we do with what we think is treasure. We'll do whatever it takes to hold on to it even at the height of foolishness, we will hold on to what we believe is the most viable thing that's going to give us happiness and satisfaction and contentment. This man that we're observing through the window, he's thinking and behaving as if the cover of darkness will protect him, as if the cover of darkness is going to give him something good for real happiness I wonder how much this man would have been helped if he had remembered the Lord's word, if he had listened to instruction, if he had taken the warnings and the commands and the promises to heart. Perhaps this portion of God's word, I wonder how much he would have been helped if he had remembered that there's no creature hidden from God's sight, that all things are uncovered and open to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. How much would that man have been helped if he had been contemplating that and meditating upon that, if he had written that upon the tablet of his heart, that all things are uncovered and open. The twilight, the dark, black, night, all th- what is that, what is that to, to the Lord who sees everything? Well, now let's turn our attention to a person that the Scripture here calls a devious woman. Let's read verses 10 through 23. Now, women, there are instructions for you, but I am preaching primarily with my focus upon the men today. Beginning at verse 10, we see that there was a woman. And there a woman met him with the attire of a harlot, and a crafty heart. She was loud and rebellious. Her feet would not stay at home. At times she was outside, at times in the open square, lurking at every corner. 
So she caught him and kissed him with an impudent, that is a, a, a hardened face, an impudent face. She said to him, I have peace offerings with me. Today I've paid my vows. So I came out to meet you diligently to seek your face. And I have found you. I have spread my bed with tapestry, colored coverings of Egyptian linen. I have perfumed my bed with myrrh, aloes, and cinnamon. Come, let us take our fill of love until morning. Let us delight ourselves with love. For my husband is not at home. He has gone on a long journey. He's taken a bag of money with him and will come home on the appointed day. I can summarize what all of this is as simply the clever deployment of a death trap. Clever deployment of a death trap. It's one thing to entice a dumb animal into a trap, but how do you trap a man? By appealing to him as if he were an animal. Men, how do you get trapped? How do you fall for this? Cleverly uh, devised, cleverly concealed death trap. How do you walk into it? By allowing yourself to be completely guided by your lower appetites, by your sensual appetites, like an animal, like a brute beast. That's how you get caught. How do you get caught in a trap like this? Well, with no, with no eternal perspective. That's how you get caught. Without a guard upon your heart, Considering all of the implications, considering the warnings and the commands and the promises of God, this is how you get trapped. By being guided, by being dominated by your appetites, your sensual appetites. All right. How do you catch an animal? Well, you catch it with bait. You appeal to its instinct. You appeal to its appetite. That's how you catch an animal. So what we've just read here is A cleverly devised, cleverly concealed death trap. And it has to be concealed, right? Because even a fool wants to preserve his own life. Even a fool doesn't want something if it's going to cost him his life. Even a fool will tell you that that's too expensive. So how do you catch a fool? You conceal it. You cover it up. You hide what it really is. You use empty promises. You use lies that distract from the truth. You conceal what's really going to happen to him. That's how you catch a fool. That's how she catches him. That's how you could be caught if you're not careful. Right? Simple-minded. There's no filter. You believe every word. You're susceptible to the lies. And it's not just from a literal one woman, but it's a collective voice from the world and the culture around us offering you lies, offering you promises. Do you see it for what it really is? It's a death trap. There was a woman, but again, dear men, old and young, it's not just a woman with a rebellious presentation of harlotry, there is all around us this world, this culture, this philosophy of devious, rebellious harlotry. 
We live in a world where that which is good and beautiful and the privacy of a marriage is openly, boldly prostituted in the open square. The mentality, the enticements, the deceptions of sexual immorality are lurking at every corner. Remember, the, remember Proverbs 22.3, A prudent man foresees evil and hides himself, but the simple pass on and are punished. If you are wise, you're looking at this and you're recognizing it for what it is so that you don't walk into it, but the simple mind ignores that. The simple-minded man ignores it and he walks right into the trap. Right? Presentations all around you, enticements, lies all around you of immorality all around you that are designed to draw you into a snare. Note the descriptions of the enticing bait of immodesty. This trap takes that which is ugly and it lies to you and it says that it's desirable. The bait of immodesty in all of its forms. We notice the immodesty in dress or attire. That is to say there is the bait of a woman presenting her body in a way that should be saved for her husband alone. There is the immodesty with her speech. Notice that she is loud. Now that's not a decibel measurement, okay? To say that she is loud is to say that she is boldly rebellious without any shame in her sexualized speech. She's boldly salacious and flirtatious. This is the loudness of her voice. We notice the immodesty in her behavior. She catches him. She, she boldly invites, she boldly even takes the lead in this inappropriate physical contact, offering pleasures that she should be restricting for her husband alone. Notice this bait of immodesty that's presented before this foolish man. It's all bait to draw him in. This is the world where this is the world we live in where promises of happiness for your heart are offered with this very bait. Come on guys, open your eyes. You've got to use a little logic. Look at how careless she is with her own soul. How careful do you think she's going to be with yours? We notice that her feet don't stay at home. That's not a GPS statement. That's a statement of her own unfaithfulness. She's a rover. Roving feet moved by discontent. Roving feet moved with an unthankful heart. This is at the soul of this. This is at the soul of not just a literal woman, but at, at this, this collective voice, this collective perspective that is around us everywhere in the world. This this discontent and this unthankfulness creating this roving. She's roving first in her heart and this is promoted in our culture. You've heard this, the, the nobility, the freedom, the power of the woman who is the bold-faced rover. She's not going to be tied down to a man. She's not going to be a slave to a husband. She's not going to be oppressed by children. This is unfaithfulness in this roving. This is unthankfulness in this roving. And it's not beautiful. 
It's ugly. It is defiling. But presented as bait, as if it's beautiful. She's a rover. It's an entire mentality of roving, wandering from one willing victim to another. The dog loves and eats its vomit because it doesn't see it for what it really is. Men, you've got to see this disgusting vomit for what it really is. Dear men, may I, may I, speak, may I speak plainly to you? If I, haven't, if I haven't been already, let me speak plainly to you now. Don't be so stupid as to think that the unfaithful, roving woman is going to suddenly change and be faithful to you. That's not her nature. Observe, she's not staying at home. Her husband is away, and she takes it as an opportunity. Faithfulness is not what she's interested in. If her own husband's heart is not safe with her, what do you think is going to happen to your own heart? She's a rover. This is what she does. She's lying to him. Notice when she says, I came out to meet you. What a lie that is. As if he and he only was the one that she was. Men, it's bait. It's a lie. It's deception. Don't fall for it. Oh, I was, I was here waiting diligently to seek your face, she says to him. I have found you. You alone were the one. No. She says it with a face that shows no shame at all. She's not going to be faithful to her husband, and you can't expect her to be faithful to anybody else. If she's not concerned about the heart of her husband, you can't expect her to be concerned about the heart of anybody else. How many men is it that thought they were special, that they alone were the object of this woman's desire only to end up on the trash pile of a lot of other men? Verse 5 warned us of the seductress who flatters with her words, and here she is doing exactly that. Oh, you, you alone. You alone. Why, it's your happiness that I'm concerned with. It's your peace of soul. It's your satisfaction. It's your contentment. It's all lies. It's all bait for a death trap. Notice that she makes the arrangements to entice and to control this fool through his senses. She's fishing with bait and hooks, and it's the fool who isn't looking to the unhappy end and who allows himself to be hooked. Notice all the appeal to his sensual appetites. The colored Egyptian linens here are simply a covering for a barb that is being pierced into his soul. All of this is baited with the promise. Notice here, it's, it's, it's all baited with this promise that his desire to be loved will be filled. Come, let us take our fill of love, she says. Love, yes, love is what I'm offering to you. Love is what you will be satisfied with. 
But I don't see any 1 Corinthians 13 love here. Do you see any of that here? It's the promises of the delight of love. It's the promises of the rewards of love. It's the promises of the satisfaction and the fulfillment of true love. But it's without the work of love. It's without the sacrifices of love. It's without the contentment of love. It's without without the faithfulness of true love. She's not talking about faithfulness. She's not talking about work. She's not talking about sacrifices. She's appealing to the man upon the basis of his sensual appetites. And here's a fool who's lingering at the corner, allowing himself to be governed by his sensual appetites. She offers the bait that she knows will work with a fool like this, and he willingly takes it up. And in the end, this fool learned only too late that a moment's sensual pleasure will come and can come with the steepest price. Notice verse 21. With her enticing speech, she caused him to yield. With her flattering lips, she seduced him. Immediately, he went after her as an ox goes to the slaughter or as a fool to the correction of the stalks till an arrow struck his liver. As a bird hastens to the snare, he did not know it would cost his life. Worth it? Was it worth it? Probably most people are not interested in knowing what it, what it looks like, what it smells like, what it sounds like when animals are processed. The house of an immoral woman is a slaughterhouse. It's a slaughterhouse. On a couple of occasions, I've had opportunity to take cows from uh, our property to the processing facility. Do you know what those cows did when we backed that trailer up to the unloading area at the back of that building? Do you know what those cows did? They walked right off. They were so happy to get off that trailer. They walked right off. Where in a matter of an hour or so, their split carcasses were hanging in a large cooler. This immorality, with all of its promises and all of its bait and all of its enticements, it drew this man into a slaughterhouse. At the beginning of the chapter, we see him walking. We would see him evaluating himself as strong and the exception to these warnings. And at the end, we find his split carcass hanging in the cooler. Men, the Lord is calling you to go to war against sexual temptation He is calling you to see it for what it really is and to see what it will do to you. When the presentations and the enticements and the opportunities of of sexual impurity are placed in front of you, you're not at the threshold of love. You're not at the threshold of happiness. 
you are at the back door of the slaughterhouse with someone enticing you to step inside. With my, with my kids, when we took uh, chickens for processing, I, I made it a requirement that at least one time my kids had to go with me because I wanted them to experience it. Oh, you should experience that, right? It's quite the experience to step into a slaughterhouse with the sights and the smells and the sounds because even animals don't want to die. Here's this lady. Oh, the Egyptian linen. Oh, the perfume. Oh, the promises. All the offerings that she's giving to him, and she's drawing him in to the slaughterhouse. For a moment's pleasure, and it cost him his life. What a lack of perspective that this man has. How short-sighted he was. Here's the conclusion now at verse, beginning at verse 24 through 27. It says, Now therefore listen to me, my children. Pay attention to the words of my mouth. Do not let your heart turn aside to her ways. Do not stray into her paths. For she has cast down many wounded, and all who were slain by her were strong. Her house is the way to hell, descending to the chambers of death. It's a slaughterhouse of souls. All you have to do is look through the window and see the gutted remains of all who stepped inside her house. Look, look, men, look past the enticements, look past the fleshly appeals to see the condemnation of our holy God upon all that goes on there. Don't listen to the corruption in your own heart that, that will whisper and lie to you, telling you that, you, that, that you're the exception All the men slain in her house, they said to themselves, we're strong enough. They were all strong, and they were all slain. Who do you think you are, the Lord is asking. They were all proud men. They were all boasting in their ability that they could take that fire to themselves and not get burned. They were all men who thought it was ridiculous that a moment's pleasure would end up costing them everything. Therefore, says the Lord, listen to his word. Pay attention. Take to heart his commands and his warnings and promises. The unrighteous are not going to inherit the kingdom of God. Do not be deceived. So what are you going to do? Are you just going to isolate yourself, cut yourself off from this polluted world? Well, that's not God's manner or method of the sanctification of His people. You can't just isolate yourself. You can't just decide that you're never going to set your foot out in the open square where temptation lurks. Remember how our Lord Himself prayed. When he said, I do not pray that you should take them out of the world, but that you should keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them by your truth. Your word is truth. Don't separate them by 
immediately removing them out of the world, separate them by your word. Notice that Proverbs 7 begins and ends with this exhortation to you that it is by the word that you will find this sanctification, that you will find this protection by his word, by treasuring up his commands within you, by treasuring up his warnings, treasuring up all of his gospel promises. In our confession, chapter 17, paragraph 3, it reminds us that the Lord's saints can fall into grievous sins, including this one. We can fall into grievous sins, it says, through the temptations of Satan, We can fall into grievous sins through the temptations of the world, and that we can fall into temptations through the extensiveness of the corruptions that remain within our own hearts. But there's another reason listed in our confession. The devil, the world, our own remaining corruptions, but there's a third thing that can be present, and it's neglect. And you might say, well, neglect of what? And the confession says, by neglect of the means of your preservation. By the neglect of the means of your preservation. We can become neglectful with the means of grace. We can become neglectful. The preaching of the Word of God is the primary means of our preservation. Have you been for a time continuing in this grievous sin? Have you incurred God's displeasure? Have you grieved the Holy Spirit in this manner? Have you had your graces and your comforts impaired? Has your heart become alarmingly hardened? Has your conscience become wounded? You don't have to wonder why if the service here of all of the means of grace, and especially the preaching, have become glancing blows on your schedule and glancing blows on your heart. You don't have to wonder why if there's been some neglect. So I exhort you to be taking in the service of the means of grace to you as if your very life depended upon it. Let me leave you with a final thought then. I want to leave you with an encouraging thought, an exhortation that I hope will take your perspective that can become um, so overcome, right, by all of the enticements, an exhortation that will help you to keep your perspective where it needs to be. And in your bulletin, there's a couple of things that John Owen said about the usefulness of your obedience. And my point to you here is I want to encourage you not to make the very dangerous mistake of beginning with the gospel of grace and then coming to the conclusion that your obedience doesn't matter. This is a very dangerous thing to do, to begin with the gospel of grace and come to the conclusion that your good works don't matter. We know from 1 Peter 3, this has been preached to us, 
having a good conscience that they wherein they speak evil of you as of evildoers, that they may be ashamed that falsely accuse your good conduct in Christ. Owen says, by our keeping of a good conscience, men will be made ashamed of their false accusations. Right? The world is the one that accuses us of being wicked. The world is the one who accuses us of being the ones who are doing evil. Here's a great encouragement to you, dear saints, that by your good work, by your good work in resisting the temptation to sexual impurity, your your good work in putting off that sin, your good work of going to war against it and daily dressing yourself in the image of Christ, in the image of Him who is pure, this puts them to shame. For their false accusations. But I want you to notice the second point, and this is where we'll end. I want you to think, as John Owen here is helping, to think about the usefulness of your good works on the day of judgment. Don't make the dangerous, this dangerous uh, conclusion where you start with the gospel of grace and you conclude that your good works are of no use on the day of judgment. Owen says, It is said that the saints shall judge the world. It is on this as well as upon other considerations. Their good works, their righteousness, their holiness shall be brought forth and manifested to all the world. This is a part of that Romans 8 unveiling of the sons of God on the great and final day. The unveiling of the sons of God will in part be this unveiling of your good works in this life an unveiling of the obedience that you pursued in this life, unveiled, manifested to all the world. And John Owen says, And the righteousness of God's judgments against wicked men be thence evinced or demonstrated. See, says Christ, these are they that I own, whom you so despised and abhorred, and see their works following. Observe. This great unveiling in this day when all will be before this throne, and Christ will say to the wicked, Behold my people, these that you abhorred. Behold my, dear, behold my little lambs who fought to put off their sins. Behold my little lambs who loved righteousness, who learned to hate their sins. These are mine. These are mine. While you, the wicked, and you, the unbelieving, you were the ones who wallowed in it. And in this way, in the great and final day, the judgment of the Lord, the righteousness of His judgment upon the wicked will be openly and plainly demonstrated. So think about it. Today, even today, your good work, going to war against this sin. And even today, this more and more progress in learning to hate this sin and to love righteousness and to love the purity of Christ and to dress yourself in this purity will be unveiled in the last day. It will follow you, says the Lord, even unto that day. And He will use it for His own glory. May May that be a strong encouragement to you today.